What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think that we hit the zeitgeist in such a unique way that people were yearning for a company that was about more than just profits. You know, we had the financial crisis of 2007. A lot of people lost a lot of money, a lot of faith in corporate America. There was a rebellious spirit against kind of big business. And so we really tapped into, whoa, here's a business that actually cares about people and not just profit. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode It's more fun to start a movement than run a company. From all of us here at Inc. Magazine, happy holidays. It's officially the season for giving. And there's a tremendous spirit of community amongst the companies navigating this truly difficult year that we want to celebrate. And while some companies do most of their giving back around the holidays, some businesses were created expressly to give back. One that helped pioneer the past decade's trend toward buy one, give one is Tom's Shoes. And its founder, Blake Mykoski, is our guest today. Blake may be best known for Tom's, but he's actually created several other companies, including a new one called Made For. We'll talk about the dip into depression he faced that led him to examine the mental health and wellness challenges of modern life and to start his new company to help people change their habits. Years ago, before Blake had started even one company, he had a more physical challenge inspire him. Blake was an athlete all his life and played tennis in college. He even dreamed of going pro one day, but an Achilles injury changed those plans. The injury had him in a cast and on crutches, living in a dorm room, unable to do basic housekeeping tasks. And so my laundry was piling up in my dorm room. My roommate was a little bit frustrated by it, and it didn't really seem like there was an option for anyone to assist me with this um, in terms of any local businesses around campus. And as I and my roommate were complaining about this to his dad over the Thanksgiving break, his dad, who had kind of an entrepreneurial bent, said, well, you guys should just start a laundry service if one doesn't exist already, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't really like doing their laundry at your school. And um, it seems like something that you guys need. And so we kind of joked around about it a little bit during that holiday um, and then came back and I recognized that not only did I have this need, but I also had a lot of time on my hands since I wasn't playing tennis all day, every day, like I was when I was an athlete. And so my roommate and I started um, a laundry business, a pickup and delivery laundry business. It was called Easy Laundry. And uh, we got permission from the school to you know, be at all the orientations when the freshmen come in and, and deliver to the dorms. And before we knew it, it really, uh, we had a, we had a real business on our hand. We had, you know, 20 employees and, and multiple trucks and then eventually multiple universities and, uh, so much that I ended up dropping out of college because I was so busy 
traveling around the around the state of Texas where we were based uh, to all of our different facilities. And uh, yeah, and so that's how I that's that was my first entrepreneurial venture, and it really kind of threw me threw me in in a big way. I had to learn a lot of skills very quickly at a very young age. Yeah, and that wasn't your only business before Tom's, is that correct? Oh yeah, no. I after that I went and started an outdoor advertising company. Um, and then I uh, attempted to start a 24-7 reality cable television network. I moved to Los Angeles to do that. Wow, as one does. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then I also started an online, the first online driver's education company that was permitted by the state of California to teach kids to drive through online classes. We were the first one to do that. And then it led to, to Tom's in 2006. And and what exactly was it that that led to Tom's? It seems strikingly different from your other businesses. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, every single business I ever started was me answering a question that I was curious about or encountering something that I was dissatisfied with. So the laundry business was, you know, um, I broke my leg and I couldn't do my laundry. The outdoor advertising business was I lived in Nashville and saw that there was all the country Western stars there had the same egos as the people who lived in Los Angeles and the billboards available to them in uh, Nashville were not the same as Los Angeles to kind of promote their latest album or, or TV show. And, and so, you know, I didn't have any experience in that. And so I just kind of got into that. And then the, you know, driver's education company was based on a conversation I had with one of my other employees uh, sons who was talking and complaining about how boring driver's ed was. And so I think that while Tom's is, you know, obviously a departure because of the giving component, seeing that there were children that didn't have shoes in a village and that there was a unique shoe in Argentina that had really never been, um, you know, kind of had had a life outside of Argentina and that I could introduce a shoe in the U.S. and use it as a way to help people, that was very similar to, I feel like, energetically the way that I had approached these other businesses. I think what was so different was this strong commitment to helping others through building the business. And, you know, that I think really uh, came from just um, a little bit of kind of being disenfranchised with the idea of just building a business to make money. You know, I think that I, I had entrepreneurial gifts and, and as an entrepreneur, you keep score a little bit with how you make money. And, and, and I had spent a decade of my life from 19 to 29, you know, trying to make money through business and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when I saw that there was an opportunity to do something to help people, but still use my business experience, that got me really excited. And that's what led to, you know, really starting Tom's. Yeah. And I, I want to get back to Tom's and the, the buy one, give one model and the basis of that. But first, it, it seems like, I mean, business after business after business, there's something so attractive to you about that spark of an idea. How many ideas have been interesting to you, but sort of left on the cutting room floor over the years? Like, how many a times did you almost start a business uh, in, a you know, in addition to those? A lot. A lot. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I get very excited about things. And now it's more of what happens with me is instead of starting businesses, I just make investments. So I get excited about a space or an industry. Like right now, I'm very interested in the use of psychedelics to help with mental health. And I've made a bunch of 
you know, you know, seven figure donations to organizations like John Hopkins University and MAPS and things like that. But I also am investing in for profit companies that are building, you know, pharma solutions based on these compounds. Um, and so I'm not going to go start, uh, you know, a psychedelic pharma company, but I'm loving investing in them and cheering them on from the sideline. I think investing is an easier approach when you have lots of interests and ideas than actually being the entrepreneur to start something every time. But I had plenty of ideas, you know, in between all those companies that uh, just, you know, ultimately didn't uh, didn't make it to the to the real start position. Yeah, the um, the the almost legal space is really really interesting for investing. I feel exactly. So when when you started Tom's, um, did you have the idea of the buy one, give one model from just right off the bat? Was that kind of fundamentally baked into the business? Yes, that was the impetus of the business. I mean, really, there was no business without that. I mean, I saw that these children needed shoes. Um, I recognized that there was this unique shoe that had been worn by, you know, kind of farmers and, and people in rural settings for hundreds of years in Argentina. And I thought, you know what, what if I sold these shoes so that I could help children get shoes that need them? That would be an interesting kind of project. I didn't even call it a business originally. I was like, this would be a project because it was not really a nonprofit idea. And it wasn't really a bit, an idea that I thought would ever make money. So a project is what I called it for the first year. Um, and we actually called it the Shoes for Tomorrow Project. It wasn't even called Tom's. And then the name Tom's came from derivative of the word tomorrow and this idea that we want to create a better tomorrow. So it was always part of it from day one, you know, and that's why I think it was so radical uh, back in 2006 in the business landscape, because no one had really done something like that before it had always been like businesses have been successful and then they get back first you know we're creating a whole business so that we can give back yeah and without that model having been popularized already i mean you really were at the forefront of that and launched probably a hundred new d to c companies with the same idea um inspired by you but but what were the biggest challenges you faced in the first couple of years? Um, I mean, there was there was this challenge of recognition and and uh, getting the word out, but then you ha- you faced some incredible growth right away too. Yeah, the gro- really the challenges were not in getting the word out or people being interested. I think that we hit the zeitgeist in such a unique way that people were yearning for a company that was about more than just profits. You know, we had the financial crisis of 2007. A lot of people lost a lot of money, a lot of faith in corporate America. Um, there was a there was a rebellious spirit against kind of big business. And so we really tapped into, whoa, here's a business that actually cares about people and not just profit. And so the marketing and growth of Tom's was never the problem. The problem was the supply chain because I had never made shoes before or given away shoes at scale from a philanthropic standpoint. So, you know. You know, all of our challenges were how do we make shoes fast enough and then how do we give shoes away fast enough, never how we sell them fast enough. (laughs) And what was the biggest thing you learned from scaling that brand so quickly? I think the biggest thing I learned was, and actually this is really interesting if I I kind of reflect on it, is that you don't need expertise to scale. There's this like misnomer that as soon as your business starts to grow, you need to hire all these experts and executives and people who've done it before. And 
I think that's kind of bullshit. Like actually those hires caused me more problems and pain than just having a group of young people who were totally just energetic by the cause and the mission and willing to work and do whatever it takes to scale the business. And so we make more mistakes because of our inexperience, but the collective cultural kind of positivity was um, much greater and had much more ease when everyone was aligned by the mission versus bringing in kind of you know experts to help us help us scale and so you could always kind of go to consultants and and firms that are that are built to help answer questions and provide expertise but i think a lot of the challenges we had was a class of clash of culture of people who were coming from bigger companies and seeing this as a huge growth opportunity company and excited about that versus the original group like myself that was passionate about the mission Interesting. So what would you have done differently? I mean, you did you did bring in outside folks um, through the years and you yourself stepped stepped back from the CEO position in 2015. Yeah, I think I think if I did it differently, I would have not brought in so many kind of high powered executives so early. Um, and I would have allowed us to grow maybe a little slower and more organically and just let more people kind of um, grow into positions of seniority. The one thing I don't regret is I think bringing in someone to run it day to day, it's a really amazing leader that I'm aligned with. That's a good idea. So I think as long as that person's not going to feel the need to bring in a bunch of executives. So I do think it's good to have someone that can have a holistic operational view if that's not your skill set as the entrepreneur, which is definitely not mine. Um, So that way I can spend more time doing what my gifts really are. Yeah, yeah. What what size was the company in terms of employees when you started to feel that that strain of the culture kind of breaking up a little bit? Um, I would say around 200 employees um, and about 300 million in revenue. I mean, we really held it together for a long time. Well, it wasn't a long time because it happened so fast. I mean, we went from, you know, zero to 300 million revenue in like four years or five years. So it happened fast. But I think it became more challenging when we got to that number and that number of employees. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of companies say 100 is a breaking point, but they also say every time your company doubles in size, it breaks, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything totally. breaks. I mean, was there any did, – did you repair it at that point or was that kind of a turning point for the company? I don't think it was a repairing. I actually feel like – it has been an ongoing struggle. I think we made shifts and adjustments along the way and, okay, this person didn't work out and this, we're going to go back to this idea. And, you know, so it's, it was never like we had some big, like intervention change, et cetera. It's just like, we just iteratively learned lessons and got better and better at, you know, kind of hiring and, and, and putting culture together and, and whatnot. Yeah. I want to talk more about the mission um, behind Tom's because I know there's just tons of entrepreneurs out there right now or would-be entrepreneurs hoping to build in a meaningful mission to their business to take a stand or give back to their community. Um, and would you have what advice would you have in specific for, for folks just starting out about how to do that correctly? I think the most important thing is that it is authentic. You know, it needs to be something that is a driving force in your life, not an add-on to your business. 
Um, the ones that have been most productive and successful, I think, are ones where the business is created to serve the mission, not the mission is created to accentuate the business. And you did build in sort of extra giving through the years, right? I mean, it wasn't just the the giving back a shoe. You started in, in, in new lines of revenue and of giving back through the years. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I think, you know, we recognized pretty early on that Tom's, the idea of Tom's, the idea of one for one was bigger than just shoes. And so what were the other ways that we could serve people and then create products that would fund that service? And so we got into eyewear pretty early because we saw that one of the great ways you could serve people in developing countries is with cataract surgeries and glasses and ways that would give them a higher quality of life and the margins and sunglasses or eyeglasses is so high that you could afford to do that. So that became a product. You know, we got into the coffee business largely because we wanted to do a different type of retail. We wanted to create more of community spaces where people could get together, exchange ideas, be inspired by this movement that we were trying to stay at the forefront of. And and our idea was as well, let's let's serve coffee. And then we found very quickly that coffee is one of the great you know, kind of economic stimulators in, in, in developing countries. And so if we got more money to the coffee farmers themselves through direct trade, then we could improve those lives while also bring in a new product. So I would say those are some of my most fun experiences with Tom's was ideating and creating and incubating these new ideas that were outside of just the shoe model. And then in in 2018, I know that the epidemic of gun violence in the United States uh, hit close to home for you, and you as a mission-driven company responded. Can you tell me about what happened and how you responded personally and as a company? Yeah, I mean, we had a a shooting um, pretty close to my home, um, and it really rattled me um, and my family. And I didn't see enough um dramatic action being taken uh, there had been a series of shootings in a row that were in the headlines and i specifically didn't see anyone in the corporate sector standing up to this and saying enough is enough um, and i also recognized that a lot of the nonprofits were not really well funded in this space um, and that it was highly politicized when it really didn't need to be um, because i think that you know the answer wasn't, you know, to take people's guns away. The answer, to me at least, seemed to create a, a more um, comprehensive background check so the wrong people can't just buy guns. Um, and so I launched this campaign to try to pass universal background checks, and we created a, an amazing campaign that people could write postcards virtually to their Congress members and that we would print them and send them for them. Um, and we also made the largest, you know, kind of um, donation pledge in the history of corporate America, $5 million to different nonprofits and really tried to spread that money across people doing amazing work in this space. Um, and for me, as I reflect on it, I think, you know, Tom started as such an activist movement. It was so radical when we started and then, you know, 
thankfully, lots of companies copy the model and it became much more kind of uh, normal for companies to have a giving model or a one for one. And, and, and that's great for, I think, society, but I think for our business and for my own excitement every day, um, it had, it had lost some of its um, uniqueness. And so I think what was interesting about the gun violence experience was it was an opportunity for us to really be a leader and courageous and somewhat radical because so many companies weren't, didn't want to go anywhere near this because it had become so politicized. And so I was able to just kind of do the right thing. And that felt really good. And it felt really good for the company. And it really um, ignited that spirit again of, you know, we're not a company, we're a movement. And it's so much more fun to run a movement than a company. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because it feels like some of the efforts of of giving back of, you know, especially just a matching uh, donation or matching a goods, a giving of a good, it seems to have some sort of limited attention span of for consumers almost, you know, like the idea when it's no longer fresh doesn't have as much traction. I've seen this from Warby Parker, you know, they've told me our, our customers don't really care anymore about the giving back model, like that's not what drives them to us. And did that happen also with Tom's a little bit. I mean, the business wasn't at its healthiest at that time, right? Yeah, no, definitely that has happened with Tom's. I mean, I think that in the early days, we had this just explosive growth with very little marketing at all, incredible customer loyalty, incredible virality of our story. I mean, all that because it was so radical, you know, and it was so different and it was so novel that people could give back through their purchase. Um, and it was so easy to understand. I think that was a huge part of it was just like one for one was like easy, right? And over time, you know, it just became less and less. Not that people aren't philanthropic or want to give back or be engaged, but there's just so many opportunities to do so now. And so many companies creating that opportunity that, you know, it definitely became not the driver, you know, and then that's when you're and then that's hard because now. You're having to work harder for customers, you know, eyeballs, and you're having to spend more money on marketing, and you're having to, you know, have more different different in your product line. I mean, there's a lot of things that we started having to do that wasn't um, our main focus when when we were riding on the on the kind of the the wave of the movement. When we come back, I'll talk to Blake about how his mental health struggles drove him to create a whole new company. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Giving has always been a huge focus of Tom's, helping others. But I feel like this year has taught us most about caring for each other in our immediate communities, you know, and that can mean within our company. Um, you've become really vocal over the past couple of years about the importance of self-care and making sure your employees and colleagues are cared for, too. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that started early on with Tom is because we worked so hard uh, and we had such a young, um, you know, kind of age demographic employees that I felt like people were going to get really burnt out unless they took care of themselves. And then I, 
ironically had a big burnout myself kind of in, you know, 2017, 16, 17. Um, and ultimately it led to my company that I'm a co-founder of and, and helping to run right now. And that's made for, um, and that really, it came from this idea that like, you know, and this is pre COVID, um, that, you know, modern living is, is tough. You know, there's all this digital distraction. There's all this demands for multitasking. There's all these, you know, kind of expectations that you're always on. And, uh, and without the proper, um, I would say habits or practices built into your daily life, um, that can kind of eat you up. And, uh, and so, what I found was, is that it wasn't a magic bullet. There wasn't some special guru. There was, I mean, I tried everything. Um, and what it was is like, you got to do these basic practices day in, day out. Um, and those, those together will help you really feel better. Yeah. What, what are some of the daily practices? Could you break it down a little bit? Um, what sort of things can really help you and, and what does made for, what does made for do? Yeah, so Mayfor's goal is to really take the latest from neuroscience um, and really show how very specific daily practices done in a certain way can have a big effect on your brain health and your physical health and your mental well-being. And we worked with scientists from all over the country to really identify not fads or trends, but what has science proven over time and really rigorous studies that make a difference in people's lives. And what we found was it was some basic things like optimizing the perfect night's sleep, you know, finding a way to declutter your house and your office so you're not weighed down by all your stuff, um, you know, gratitude practice and really having a structured way to express gratitude to people and to feel it in your heart every day, um, you know, really the importance of breath. Uh, hydration. I mean, there's these are, they all kind of seem so simple, but the thing is, is that they really are actually hard to practice consistently. Like we might, you you know, might really focus on our hydration for a while and then we kind of fall off and realize, man, I haven't drank a, you know, very much water at all for five days and no wonder I'm irritable and not sleeping well and tired. Well, i I'm, I'm chronically dehydrated right now, you know? So, so the, the nice thing about what we've created is it's actually really easy for people to learn through our program. You learn one new practice per month for 10 months. Um, it's all analog. There's no like digital app you have to be on or check-in system. It all comes to you in the mail. Um, which has been great during COVID when a lot of people have been, you know, staying home Um, and you focus, you know, acutely on one thing until you really have integrated it into your life in a way that it will stick. And that's the hardest thing. Like we learn these things and they help and work for a little while. And then ultimately we go back to our old ways and we start feeling, you know, not our optimal selves again. And I, and look, I experienced that myself, even as, you know, the co-founder of the company, like I will have times and in the holidays is usually a time when it happens to me where I'm like, man, I haven't been doing any of my gratitude practice. I haven't been outside in nature, which I know has, you know, a very specific effect on my brain chemistry. And, and I haven't been connected with the people I care most about. I've been so isolated that, you know, I, that I'm really um, slipping into a negative headspace 
but it's so easy to diagnose now because I know what I need to do in order to get and get it going again. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, you could say like, I, I would not pay any money for a program that's going to have me drink five glasses of water a day or whatever, you know. Yeah. I, but I mean, if you can actually train me to sleep better in a month, I would I'd be floored. I mean, that's not something I could ever I, I would pay. I, I would pay any amount of money for that. <laughs> well, I think the thing that we hear from our made for members so much, because we don't really tell you when you sign up. I mean, I'm sharing some of the the things that we do, but in very broad terms on not necessarily how we do them, you don't really know what the challenges are going to be each yeah, month. Yeah, I, I was looking at the website. It looks a little cryptic. <laughs> yeah, and that's by nature because we know that there's a lot of like joy in kind of getting a mystery package in the mail each month and be like, oh, what am I going to work on this month? You know, that's part of the fun of the program. And so what we find is that what people are paying for is and there and what the motivation is is a deep desire to feel better to operate at a higher level to have you know more connection to their families and their loved ones and 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 so they really don't care what the method is that gets them there they just want to feel that they're going there and i think what's interesting is if they surrender what their limiting beliefs are as to what will get them there and that it needs to be some complicated program or some magic pill that they've never heard of or something that is like cutting edge and they just say okay i'm going to trust you know these scientists and trust these these founders that are really passionate about serving humanity and we'll see what happens then usually after two or three months like wow i never would have thought like this specific um gratitude practice of sending these postcards to people who've had an influence on my life would have had such an effect uh, but this and this and this happened or I, you know, I, I always thought I slept pretty good and I had some pretty good habits around sleep, but man, when I cut out, you know, the idea of using my phone as my alarm clock and started using the made for alarm clock every day, wow, like I'm waking up and my cortisol is not spiking because I'm not getting that stressful message and I'm having a way to enter my day with more peace. And I mean, it's just, it's just amazing how simple practices have such a transformative effect, but the person, I mean, we really ask a lot of faith from our members to trust that the science and the way that we've put it together really does work. Yeah. How do you get people to trust you without telling them the, the entire yeah. story? I, I think what the most important thing, and this has been, I think, something kind of um, consistent with my business is, is it's really driven through word of mouth. You know, it's really driven from someone doing it and telling, oh, my God, my coworker, you have to do that. My wife, you have to do that. Like my kids, like I did this and it had such a, so it's really hard in this day and age for a company to make claims that are strong enough to be um, influential in someone's decision. But if you hear from your best friend that they're on month three and this is like the coolest thing they've done in the self-help space in a long time, then you're like, oh, I'm going to try it. And so what we're finding is, is we got to really, and we invest a lot of time and energy on building out our community of members and really connecting with them on a weekly basis. So my co-founder, Pat, he hosts Zoom calls every week with different members in different classes. And sometimes there's a hundred, sometimes there's 600 people on there, but it gives a forum for people to share. And Part of what the beautiful thing about learning something new is, is the more that you share it and teach it, the more it sticks. And so that's also a way I think that, 
you know, people have found made for us through the sharing of their friends, whether it be on social media or in dinner conversations. Interesting. So you said that um, 2016 and, and 2017 were sort of a low point for you. Um, and, and that helped you kind of come to this business and start to form it. Can you talk a little bit more about that period of time and what it meant to you? Yeah, I think the hard thing was, is I had just been working for so many years, so hard, just kind of burning the candle at both ends that I had kind of neglected any kind of personal care. And, and I think also at that time, I had had a tremendous amount of external success, both financially and notoriety and, you know, um, you know, kind of accolades, et cetera. And what I recognized was no matter, no amount of external success was giving me the peace and the joy that I longed for. And that part of the problem was, is I was exhausted um, physically and mentally. And so, um, in order for me to even have the energy to explore the kind of internal landscape of myself, I needed to get some of the basics operating better again. And that's what kind of led down this path of, you know, meeting my co-founder and talking to scientists and really understanding like in the state in the, you know, especially from a neurochemistry standpoint, like what was going on inside me, that was suboptimal and then what I could actually do without some huge intervention um, that would help. Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you have clinical depression or was it sleep deprivation? Um, I feel like those are kind of, they operate in a gray area for some people. Yeah. I mean, I think I had definitely mild depression. Um, I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, go the pharma route. Um, So I wasn't like, you know, clinically diagnosed um, with it, but definitely looking back, I had all the symptoms of depression. Yeah. And how did that affect the business? Um, I mean, you were still working at Tom's, right? Uh, Yeah, it did not affect it very well because I didn't have the energy or the creativity and and a lot of times felt the need to be kind of checked out. And and that's kind of when around the time that I really stopped being as engaged um, really, you know, at all. Mm-hmm. And how did you get on track to then start and start the new business? How did you? Yeah, I think that I've always found joy in sharing anything that has been productive or effective for me. And I think that sometimes my desire to share and to help others outweighs even my own desire for my own well-being. Um, and so as I started to see some things that could help help myself, my natural inclination was, well, we got to get this information out there and get it and teach it in a novel way. And, uh, and so that was really a part of, I think me, um, kind of bouncing back was having something outside of myself to focus on. Yeah. And do you think that there's something to that? It's just so exciting to start a business that, that you just needed to do that and, and like, sn- like to lift yourself out of it. I mean, that that's something that founders tell me that they just get kind of hooked on the adrenaline level. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm I know a lot of founders like that. And I appreciate the excitement of, of the of the creation process. For me, it's always been a little bit more of the adrenaline. If there is if we're going to say like there's an adrenaline rush or whatever, it's more of seeing that this could really have an impact in a positive way on society more than the excitement of the new business. Because frankly, 
there's a lot of stuff that has to happen work-wise to get a business launch that I don't really love doing anymore. And so that's not my thing, but knowing like, oh, the work that we're doing or bringing the scientist on or whatever is really going to help people with this, that does get me excited. Let's talk about launching a business during a pandemic. You guys mm. started in March. Is that right? Yeah. yeah oh, my gosh. oh, my gosh. What was that like? <laughs> Well, I think that it was there's there's pros and cons. The, the 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 obvious con was is that a huge part of our strategy for launching was to do things like we're doing right now, a lot of podcasts, a lot of media, a lot of traditional media, a lot of speeches, which I've done a lot of over the years, and all of that came to a halt because of the pandemic. I mean, the news cycle was obviously monopolized by that. There was very little way to kind of get our message out there. Um, and so those first couple months were very slow in terms of, you know, growth and opportunity to get people to know about Made For. The positive of it was, is the people who did sign up, who did find out about it through the small opportunities we had to reach people, they really had a tremendous experience right from the get go and started sharing it with their friends who were also you know, quarantined in their homes. And so now we're seeing really explosive growth because enough people have used the Made For program as something to kind of hold on to and ground during the pandemic. Right. I mean, what better time to work on yourself than this time when we're so many of us are alone with ourselves? <laughs> exactly. And really, we might not ever have this opportunity again. So I'm even doing that myself right now, even at a deeper kind of spiritual level as I'm really asking myself big, big questions and giving myself plenty of time alone to sit and think and pray and meditate because I'm like, I don't know if there's ever going to be another time where I am, you know, I am so uh, less distracted because of the need to to be staying home and, and being careful. So probably most of, of your customers are not to the end of the 10 months yet of their, their cycle of monthly deliveries um, and challenges. But what's designed to happen at the end of the 10 months then? Yeah, so we, we did about 1,300 people in the beta group before we ever launched. So we've had over 1,000 people complete the program even before we launched. So we kind of know what people's experience is. I mean, we like to say that you know, people come to Made For for so many different reasons, and I don't think the value is in any one thing they learn, but in the way that their mindset shifts during the program. Oftentimes, we come in with some form of a fixed mindset and fixed beliefs, and then Made For really helps open your mind up to a growth mindset and the belief in yourself that you can make positive changes in your life. We really kind of end the program with help you really outlining a mission and vision and kind of the core values of your personal life as well as your professional life. And, and, and we do that in a way that really hopefully helps you identify what are the changes or the things you want to improve in your life now that you have elevated all these kind of basic aspects with these habits and practices. And, and we see people do lots of things that we could never have imagined, you know, whether it's personal goals or professional goals or, or, or relational experiences. And that's what's so fun is to get that feedback. I, I love that this concept of growth mindset has sort of come out of Silicon Valley and now is just everywhere. Um, my my little kids are doing virtual school right now. And on one of uh -huh. their school apps, there's like a, a popular category of growth mindset. 
you know, lessons. And I was like, wow, for five year olds. <laughs> yeah. How did how did you take that concept and, and turn it into something that, that could create a lasting effect for an individual, not a company? Well, I think, you know, I mean, Carol Dweck's book around growth mindset, I think, is really one of the premier explanations of what a growth mindset really is and why it's such a predicator of success. So it's no doubt that Silicon Valley has, you know, really ad- adopted this and, and based on its, you know, hyper-competitive, success-oriented um, culture. But I really think a growth mindset is much more of a personal journey than a corporate one. Um, it's really about being a lifelong learner. It's about being open to change, to to, to, to growing outside of your comfort zone. It's about, you know, realizing that your current set of circumstances are really only fixed if you allow your mind to be fixed. Um, and that, you know, that change is something that can be embraced. And, and, and so I, I think, um, I think what happens with made for is that people have, um, these amazing experiences where they start one of the monthly challenges and they think, I can't do this, or I don't want to do this, or I don't even see the value in this. And and then they just say, you know what, but I've paid my money. The box is here. The instructions are easy. The accountability is, you know, in the community group that I joined, you know, through the Made For program, and I'm going to just do it. And then five, six, seven, eight days into the month, they start saying, wow, this is actually working. Like, this is actually and then after the end of the month, they're like, I can't wait to do the next month. And then after a couple of months, they're like, I'm the type of person that can make positive change in my life. And that is the goal. That is the, if there's anything we can deliver, it's that change in attitude and mindset and getting people unstuck. So the skeptic has to sort of convert themselves. <laughs> Exactly. That's a huge part of the journey. Interesting. Um, what's the biggest challenge you've faced so far this year, starting the company, starting to grow it and gain traction? I mean, it's been a very difficult year to do any kind of business. Um, you have a few advantages being, you know, designed to be sent through mail, designed to work with individuals alone, wherever they are. Um, but, but what's been challenging for you operationally? Um, operationally, it's just been the logistics, you know, because we've had to deal with warehouses shutting down, opening up, COVID, you know, protocols, like a lot of things that any business that's shipping out boxes and products is dealing with. I think also just working remote is, you know, it's fine if you have a team that has been working together for years and is pretty well oiled when you're a startup and everyone's kind of new, um, you know, doesn't have that, that those years of experience and connection working remotely is a little bit harder. Yeah. How do you gain any kind of cohesiveness there? Well, my co-founder, Pat, you know, he runs the company day to day and he had nine years as a Navy SEAL. Um, and I think his, you know, experience in the teams and in the military really lends itself to, you know, kind of keeping morale up and building community and, you know, trust. And like, he's just a great leader. And so, a great leader finds any situation, no matter how challenging it is, is a great opportunity. And I think he's, you know, through Zoom and through lots of team meetings and, and you know, in, in, in constant communication, he's really kept everyone feeling not only engaged, but like excited about what's happening during this unique time. So a, a lot of entrepreneurs and founders listen to this podcast. What's a piece of advice that you would give them directly related to their mental health? You know, how, how can they take care of themselves? What, what do you wish you knew, uh, you know, a decade ago 
or more? I mean, I think the biggest thing is to not be afraid to ask for help. You know, I mean, it's it's hard. It's lonely, especially right now during COVID. I mean, you know, I'm going through my own personal challenges with some of the things going on and in our culture and, and, and how divided everyone feels and how alone people feel. And so the biggest piece of advice I have is just like recognize that there is no shame in asking for help. And that help might be in signing up for a program. It might be joining a group. It might be, you know, getting a group of friends to get on Zoom calls more often. It might be therapy if you've never done that. Like, I mean, it, it comes in so many forms but life is too short to try to figure this all out on your own. Blake Mikowski, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. After talking with Blake, I love that he says it's more fun to run a movement than to run a company. So much of starting up is in the pa- so much of starting up is in the passion founders put into it. And to fuel that drive, actually doing something that makes the world a better place can be a lot more motivating than just making money. That said, pondering with Blake whether there are structural or customer retention issues with the giving back model was fascinating. He'd clearly caught something right at the moment consumers were craving it. But did the company need to evolve along with the consumer's taste? His interests also changed over time. And when he felt the pull of the issue of gun violence, he and Tom's put a lot of money into the groups helping fix it. It really ignited the spirit again of we're not a company, we're a movement, as he said. Now that he has a new venture aimed at healthier living, word of mouth is driving customers which is extreme faith in his own ability to start a movement. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please hit subscribe to What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. Also, we'd love it if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a minute, and it really does help other people who love this podcast find us. You can drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com. Tell us whose story do you want to hear next on our show. You can also let me know on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer who helps me through my low moments and always makes sure everyone is hydrated is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.